All right. For the, uh, the few, the proud, the faithful, those that have lingered on to the very end here, Lord willing, we will find encouragement and I think much comfort in this session, at least by the end of it, Lord willing, we'll, we'll find our hearts strengthened and ministered to by the words of the Lord. And by that I mean the Scripture. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your Scriptures that minister Christ to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a mind to think. I realize exhaustion and tiredness may have Uh, bled into our thinking so that we are not alert, and I pray that you would help us to pay attention to the life-giving words of Scripture that you might teach us, and in so doing, you might strengthen your church and bring about a more robust, vibrant people in Bakersfield that proclaim the word of truth, the gospel, for the sake of our precious Savior's name. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom to be on guard against those ministries and those dangers that are close at hand that you might protect us and keep our doctrine and our faithfulness true to the Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. I I will be in Hebrews chapter 1, but let me start by introducing to you the, uh, I, I think the challenge that we have in front of us, and that is influencers would say that they are not Charismatic. I'm not sure exactly what they think charismaticism means. Uh, So let me let me just encourage you in a simple sense that when I think of that claim, that concern that I have with influencers is that they they communicate in various and repeated times that God speaks to His people in an audible voice or something similar to that. Um, having said that, I, I think it's the burden is on me to prove it. But, but again, my, one of my concerns is that, that both local and national leaders and influencers say, we don't or we don't mean to. That's just a slip of the tongue. We'll change that wording. Um, I am both concerned with the wording, but also that the wording actually does represent the commitments. And changing the wording and not changing the commitments is not exactly what we would want to see in an organization that is so saturated with charismatic language of God speaking, God talking, God causing feelings and uh, other types of sensations. And and so let me just give you the evidence from uh, their own writing that, in fact, this language is prolific and meaningful. Uh, If you look with me on the notes, this is... um, the main author of all the written materials, as far as the one taking credit for it, I think perhaps their workbook or their manual was collaboratively written. I'm not sure. It doesn't have an authorship with it. But this is, this is out of uh, Beyond the Inner Chamber. In the prologue, so this is not an analogy, this is not some uh, metaphor or allegory, uh, which is one of the um, defenses I've heard. Is it a vision or creative writing? Maybe it's both. I've come to realize that when God wants to reach me and teach me and challenge me with something important to write, he uses various ways such as people, dreams, visions, and stories with a vision, but with a whole lot of biblical truths. 
Now, if, if, you're, if you're reading that, then what you're hearing is that the primary author of this material is saying, God wants to reach me, and he gives me visions, dreams, and sometimes visions, or excuse me, stories with visions, and a whole lot of biblical truth. That's, that's direct revelation. That is the, that is the pulse that thrums through every charismatic church in this country. There's a commitment to having this immediate access to God and his voice. I, I do want to make the point, though, the material at various times does say the right things. For instance, you'll see uh, in, in point one, subpoint A, he told me that, the, oh, that's, I don't think that's a, a good response. Oh, I guess it is a good response. He told me that the Lord would have his children develop their communion with him by reading his word and allowing him to speak to us through it while applying those passages to our lives. We should then answer him by praying back our responses. I, I think that's relatively standard. That is, God speaks to us through the scriptures. We speak to God when we pray to him. I don't have a problem with that. It's the rest of the mystical talk that fills the material and overrides that, that concern. Um, my theology professor always described evaluating organizations and people as a fairly simple task. We don't ask where they're standing or what they're saying. We just ask where they're going. And both personal testimony and experiences from people I've spoken to indicate that, in fact, the organization does not only maintain, but promote direct revelation from God. Uh, one gentleman told me just a few weeks ago that a man was invited as a, a, um, an outsider who had been part of influencers and was still part of a different study to come and share what God had spoken to him. He had gone to the mountains and spent time alone with the Lord, he said, and then he read to the whole group a, a series, and maybe it's poet, poetic, I'm not sure exactly, it sounded maybe psalmic, and then he finished by saying, "'Thus saith the Lord.'" That man was invited back to another Bible study to read that again. So I, I do know that locally, that this type of language is not only um, permitted, but I would suggest it's promoted. Point two, mystical talk and experiential language fills the material. When he mentioned my name, he would squeeze my hand and shake it. Uh, this is two men, Gabe, who is the superhero of the story, and, and the protagonist, who's hardly ever named, if ever, um, my memory just makes me want to call him Mike. I'm not sure if I made that up or if that's actually somewhere. Um, but the protagonist, Gabe, or, uh, Gabe is, is talking to the main character. And the main character is saying, when he, that is Gabe, mentioned my name, he would squeeze my hand and shake it as if he were lifting up to God. I could feel the energy of his sincere prayer and God's power flow through him to me. This in itself was a meal for me of spiritual food. I don't even know what to do with that. Point B, to know God accurately, we need to know Jesus intimately, and we need to make it our priority to seek this intimacy with him and to get to know God through Jesus. This close proximity allows his Holy Spirit to affirm what we read about him as he leads us to the truth about who God is. However, sometimes God will use one of his children who is inspired by his Spirit to show us how to hear God and be taught by his ways, which was the case in my life. It's in an orphan no more, page 13. It's essential to tune in as you start your time with God. Hopefully you have found a quiet, private, and comfortable place at this time. Look for a place that will allow you to pray out loud if you desire to do so. 
a good way to begin your tuning is to ask the Holy Spirit to bless you with an intimate time with him. Ask him to help you to be able to hear him and sense his presence. That's in the workbook on telling you how to pray and interact with God. That's not part of any allegory. If you look at point E there, the Lord spoke clearly. Yes, you must believe to receive and release that you may gain. And the Lord spoke these things to my heart. I continued to pace my little area around the campfire. The story continues later. It's also highly emotional in its talk. Now, if you know me well, I'm not an emotional guy. Um, My wife will come home with some fantastic clothing find or fantastic deal, and she'll be bouncing around in terms of emotions, and she is very disappointed in my one-syllable responses. Usually, like, good. If it's a couple syllables, it's usually like, how much? Um, But there are, are... are things that stir me to passion. In fact, probably the most emotional I get is actually when preaching God's word and speaking of Christ himself. So I I do not want to discount emotions as a righteous response, but it is guided by the truth of God's word. It is doctrinally sound. And this is anything but. Point A. I felt a loving embrace, almost as if I was picked up by my shepherd and brought into his arms. Tears began to flow down my cheeks when I understood the reality of how Jesus looked at me. Gabe saw my tears and put his arm on my shoulder and said, I know the feeling, son. It is overwhelming to get in touch with God's love for us, a love we didn't realize that he has for us. Your tears of realization show me that God is building you a strong foundation to help you to know him better. Point B, boils my blood. I prayed out loud a heartfelt prayer. These simple words came from what I was feeling deep within. I prayed, Good night, Daddy. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. I love you. And then I fell into a deep sleep, feeling wrapped in his love as never before. Just an aside, I'm going to have a handful of these in this sermon as well. In, in the New Testament, when you see the word Abba, that's Hebrew, it's not toddler. Right? This is not Paul saying dada. This is Paul going to the native language of the people that he has grown up with, of the language with which he speaks, and saying the heart knows its Father in heaven because the Spirit ministers, whereby we know he's our Father, so our hearts cry out, Abba. That's Hebrew. That's what Paul thought in, is my guess. Moving on. I am his son, and he is my daddy, and I finally understood what I was missing and what Gabe said I needed. I needed to be loved by the best daddy a man would ever have and to have him affirm me as his son. Then the orphan spirit is released. Two more, if you can endure. There are times that an extra special assurance and touch from me, this is Jesus speaking, is needed by my child. This is the place for that special touch from me. But several minutes before the Lord verbally spoke again, he seemed to be speaking to my heart, my soul, and every cell in my body in a different way. I felt as if I was marinating in his spirit, and he was imparting to me a special healing that was meeting needs I did not even know I had. 
Now, granting that this is actually somewhat, allegory is probably the wrong word for this. This is, it's kind of like a vision scape where this man has this vision of going to this cottage, and the author is using this to describe different elements of prayer, for instance, uh, petition, repentance for sin, and, and this, is, this is the recovery room after having gone through the rigors of repenting from sin and feeling beat up by um, having to repent. And so he sits down and God ministers to him. Okay, so the way, the way like parables or analogies or allegories work is you have the, the pictured story, let's go prodigal son, and you have the analog, right? So, so the prodigal son is actually an analog for the sinners that Jesus was ministering to for which the Pharisees were angry. The father whom the prodigal ran away from is an analog for, for God. And the angry, self-righteous older brother is an analog for the Pharisees and their self-righteous anger. And it's clear at the end of the story that that older brother is alienated from his father. He's outside the house. And Jesus is preaching real strong. And everyone knew what he was preaching. And they were angry at him for preaching at them. Apparently he had read the scripture and he was tearing out and tearing down. As we just heard, right? What's the analog for marinating in the Holy Spirit? Does that make sense? Like, okay, I'm reading this analogy. I, I get it, man. I, I, when I go to prayer, I can pray through praise and adoration. I can move to a place of contrition and repentance over sins and ask God to help me to see myself in light of Scripture so that I can, I can be cleansed. Right, Psalm? Make it so clear in Psalm 19 that the Word of God does good work in my heart. So I can, I can imagine myself moving around this metaphorical cottage I am just dumbstruck with how to marinate in his spirit. But that's the type of language that means nothing, but appeals to our desire to experience something that we want, but Scripture has never told us to want. Point E, he was ministering to me in a way I had never experienced before. Heavenly music filled my ears and found lodging in my soul. A gentle humming anointed me with tranquility and calmness. I felt a warmth move over my head to my toes as the Lord's Spirit moved over me. Again, I'm looking for an analog here. What does that mean in my prayer time with the Lord? Heavenly music ministered to my soul. This is not lyrical music. It's just harps. This truth is what ministers to us, right? This is what our concern is then, is if this is filling the material and this is a discipleship material that won't admit it's discipleship material, we are teaching young and immature Christians that they should be awaiting the voice of God to talk to them, to speak to them in their hearts, a literal voice, the material claims, to communicate with them. They want to feel and experience what God is doing, to know that God is actually doing something. Where it's like Psalm 139, the psalmist is appealing out to God and saying, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. He does not know that by experience. He knows that by confident assertion of God's omnipresence and commitment to his people to never abandon them. You don't feel God's presence 
You apprehend it by faith. God is spirit. That means immaterial. He is not sensed empirically. Not unless he chooses to make himself known as in the burning bush or in the incarnation. So then we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and I am going to, Lord willing, do a lot of work with you this morning, this afternoon now. You can see I need to catch up with where we're at. So let me just call you to a place of just absolute gratitude for who our God is. I want you to look with me in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke. Our God speaks. Right? As a cessationist, as someone who looks at the charismatic um, mess that we live in and the way it has infiltrated and put its tentacles into all sorts of good churches, the answer is not to mute God. The answer is to find deep comfort in a personal God who actually does speak. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The author of Hebrews is not in any way minimizing the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he's telling us really clearly what the Old Testament scriptures have done. The Old Testament scriptures are rightly described as God's speech. It's no mistake that we use words like God's word, or we'd say something like God spoke. In fact, that's a common introduction by the prophets or by the New Testament writers as they quote the prophets. God spoke. So it is kind of funny when we do that, when we say that, it's like, oh, look at what God said, and then we read. Because we get it. We just assume, and it's been taught and good and well taught, that God's, God's written scripture is actually God speaking to us. It's his words. God communicates with us then effectively through his words. We don't need to belabor the point, and, and for the sake of the time, and I, there are some important things we do want to get to, let me move on. But if God be God, then he certainly knows how to talk effectively. He knows exactly what to say and how to say it. Man, there are some times where I have said some things to my wife that I thought were really good. And when I measure her face and her response, I know I missed it. You ever done that? God never has. Ever. After this morning's sermon, I was walking away going like, ah, I should have said this. There's more I wanted to say. You know who's never said that? God. He's omnicompetent. That means that as in omnipresence, he's present everywhere. Omnicompetence would be he does exactly what is right and wise and best always. He's omnicompetent. And so when it comes to his spoken word, there can be no doubt that he has said precisely what is wise, best, and most effective to bring him glory and his saints' goodness. Moving on, our God spoke through his Son. Look how he says this in verse 2. He has spoken through the prophets, but now in these last days, introducing this new era, the messianic era, the era of the church, he has what? Spoken. It's an aorist, in plumber's Greek, 
He says it speaks to the whole set. That is, a, it's a self-contained unit. In Shriner's commentary, say, he says something like this. God has finally and fully spoken. That is, we would expect no more revelation and no more continuation and nothing else needs to come after because God has fully and finally spoken in His best speech through His Son. And so when I read the Scriptures, I am not merely reading words. I am reading the revelation of the Son of God. And in such case, as was said earlier this morning, Christ speaks And when he speaks, it's God speaking in a way that is more excellent without either impugning the integrity or the truthfulness or the fullness of the Old Testament scriptures. Christ is superior. Frankly, that is the message of Hebrews, isn't it? Christ is better. He's better, just like period. Everything can come after that. It doesn't matter. He's better. And so he is superior to the Old Testament prophets through whom God spoke. In chapter 2 it says, Therefore we must pay closer attention. Dare we neglect this salvation that Jesus Christ delivers. That was attested. Look look with me in chapter 2. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So now I'm going I'm to pull you into the thinking then of the author of Hebrews and draw your attention to John in just a moment. But I would, I would take these texts fitting together to say that the Lord's word through Christ has completed the canon. And so when we get to the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it warns us not to add a word, or the curses in this book will be added to you, I think there's canonical, that means um, there's an awareness, a consciousness in John the Apostle that he is penning the end of the New Testament, and he's saying, don't you dare tamper with this ever period now having said that i want you to notice that the miraculous signs and wonders are meant to testify corroborate that god has spoken through his son In other words, the very purpose of these signs and wonders, the very purpose for the revelatory work, the very purpose for prophets who heard God and then communicated to the church what God said was to attest and accredit the revelation of the Son coming through the apostles and prophets. That's why signs and wonders were given. So let me take you to John and see if that won't strengthen our understanding of this thought. Take you to John 14 as well as John 16, primarily John 16, verses 13 and 14. Some other texts not understood well by many, but I think can be quickly apprehended by us. When you come to John 16, Jesus is strengthening the apostles because his departure is soon. You can only imagine what soul-rending moments were coming for these men as they watched their 
precious Savior die, and for at least a few days, their whole world was rocked. And so he's comforting them, praying for them, and pleading with them to understand more broadly what's happening. In verses 13 through 15, though, he's equipping them for future ministry as well. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Who's speaking? The Lord is, right? Jesus is. So the Holy Spirit will glorify our Savior, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Nothing less than the Trinitarian work to bring us the Scriptures is at play here. As the Holy Spirit ministers to the apostles, and like a spotlight in a dark room, you don't look at the spotlight. The spotlight highlights the speaker, the performer. Jesus Christ at the center of the stage. The Holy Spirit's job is to be the spotlight so that the church looks and sees the glorious Son who is the revelation of the Father. I want you to look in chapter 14 with me. I I just want to hit this one because it's one of those verses I hear people um, use and I'm like, I don't think it means what you think it means. Verse 23, Jesus answered. I'm sorry, I want to look down at verse 26. I need to read my notes more clearly. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance that I've said to you. Now, I don't remember walking with Jesus. I wasn't there when he fed the 5,000. I wasn't there when he raised his sweet friend Lazarus from the dead. Were you? Because he's bringing things to your remembrance. So it says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. Who is being taught? The disciples. Who is being promised a memory through the gift of the Spirit that will be true to fact and history? I will bring all things to your remembrance. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to secure for us the documents of the New Testament without error by eyewitnesses, and if you've ever tried to get the truth from your kids, you know that this is a task that takes divine power. Have you ever had one of those moments? You walk into chaos, and you're like, you, what happened? And you hear a story, and you're like, okay, clearly the culprit's over here. So what happened? You're like, whoa, totally different story. And sometimes neither one of them is a culprit, and it's still a totally different story. The Holy Spirit is granting to these men the ministry of remembering accurately so that the life and ministry of Christ in the pages of Scripture would be absolutely perfect. And I can only imagine that the Holy Spirit's ministry did not bring to their attention the exact same things, which is why we have these Gospels that give us points of view that allow us to see the beauty of Christ from different angles. And in fact, it corroborates strengthens the testimony. I want to take you back to chapter 16 in case you missed some of the details of this text that are just precious for us. Look with me again in verses 13 through 15. 
particularly if you pay attention to verse 14. He will glorify me, for he, ta- he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What exactly is being declared? All of it, right? For he, he will take it all. I want you to back up to verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. But when the Spirit of truth comes, okay, if we just stop on that, you notice it's not the Holy Spirit here? It's the Spirit of what? Why would that matter? Because that's the ministry Jesus is wanting them to see the Spirit is going to bring to them. It's not that he's not holy. It's that truth is so consequential to his ministry of ministering to them as they, in the future, will be used for the founding of the church. He continues, the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into how much truth? All truth. All truth. And he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me. So you have two implicit, excuse me, explicit statements. Truth in all things that Jesus has declared. So the Holy Spirit's ministry here is to glorify the Savior by doing all in terms of the communication. So how much? All that God wanted. All that God ordained. Now clearly, as the infinite Son of God, this limited book, it only has so many words. I don't care what translation you have, they're not an infinite number of words at the end. It doesn't go forever. The Holy Spirit has put all that God intended in this book to accomplish his purposes. All. There's not one thing missing. Not only that, we know because it's the spirit of truth that it's all true. It's credible, it's believable, and it must be believed, or God is not God and is a liar. Titus 1-2, God cannot lie. Further, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to glorify himself, but to shine the light on our glorious Savior. So come back with me to Hebrews. You know what? Let's not go to Hebrews yet. I, I want to I I bring in a couple, couple thoughts here. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to argue for cessationism real briefly. It will be very brief, I promise. So Ephesians 2, just tying this together with what we just looked at in John. I just want to equip you to think about this biblically. So Ephesians 2, verse 20, just really simply said, and I know this has been brought up before. So so this household of God, verse 19, is built on the foundation of whom? The ministry of the apostles and prophets. So when we read John, and we're told that the Holy Spirit's ministry is going to be one that gives all the truth about the Son so that he might be glorified, and then we read a text like that, and we realize that the purpose of that ministry was to be the foundation of the church, then we should be thinking, like most buildings, when the foundation is done, you don't keep working on it. You build on it. That foundation was laid. And just in case it's not clear, an apostle is someone who is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. That's why the Spirit could bring things to their memory. They actually saw him. They knew who he was. Having said that, let me just bring your attention at least mentally to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where the apostle says, I did the gifts of an apostle among you. Now here's my point with that. If apostles are all in the grave, and they are, and gifts of the apostles were done, 
then I can at least argue implicitly then there are not those gifts now. Does that make sense? You with me? Which means I can argue cogently that some gifts stop being present in the church. Are you still tracking? The purpose of the prophetic gifts, the revelatory gifts, Ephesians 2.20 said, was to build a foundation for the church. So now I know apostolic gifts have ceased, therefore I know some other gifts may have ceased too. I think you can logically say that um, they don't have to continue just because we had them then. Because that's, I think, one of the concerns. In fact, I was doing this little experiment. I had to take a drive real quick. I was visiting some church members, and I started listening to songs on, I think it was 88.3. And on my phone, I just started to keep a tally of ones that were charismatic and ones that weren't. Just because I knew I was doing this session. It was really bad. It was like 85% are charismatic in some sense. The last one as I was pulling into the parking, on my parking lot as I returned said something like, Lord, you worked in power then and you're working in power now. And it was not referring to the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the preached word of God. Now, my point in saying the apostolic gifts have ceased is to argue that so also then have the revelatory gifts that were necessary for the founding of the church through those apostles and prophets. That being the case then, I would add to the argument, Hebrews chapter 1, as why that's not a loss. So in Hebrews chapter 1, I want to resume our consideration of that. Initially we see that God speaks... Then, and I changed the tense here, you notice it in your notes, I hope, God spoke through his Son. In John, you see that the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. Finally, I would just suggest to you that we meditate on the character of the Son. This is a, an organized list in which there's, there's rhythm to it, so that the emphasis is probably on the first and the fifth line. For those nerds in here, it's a chiastic arrangement. So he has spoken, aligns with, he is the exact imprint or expression of God's nature. God has appointed him heir of all things, is, is consistent with sustaining all things by his powerful word. He made the universe, is parallel to he made purification. And then the sun is the radiance of God's glory, is, is consistent with the same claim that he is in higher rank than all the angels. That is, he is glorified. And you consider what then Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is suggesting is I think he is considering the criticisms we might have that God has spoken through his son. For instance, you might wonder, maybe there was a, a concern that these words are not majestic enough. This, this bucket is not deep enough to carry effectively to the listeners, all the manifold glory of the Son. Well, to those that say that, the character of the Son is at stake then. And who is he? God has spoken to us by his Son, and he is the exact expression. He is the radiant glory of God. There is no doubt that the Son has the bandwidth to communicate to us all the glories of God. In fact, when you read Exodus... And you read Exodus 33, and Moses has this fantastic moment, and he says something like this, God, show me your glory. 
Have you guys heard God's response back? I will show you my glory and I will preach it to you. God believes, because it's so the word no, but God tells us that preaching the word spoken is what Moses needed to hear to have the divine glory communicated to him effectively. So when we come to Hebrews and it says God spoken through his son, he's the heir of all things. He created the world and he is the radiance of the glory of God. We dare not look at the scriptures and say somehow we're losing out by reading words in black and white. God himself to Moses said, I'm going to preach to you. And he does. I am gracious. I am merciful. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He preaches words to communicate his glory to Moses. So when we come into the uh, the, the author of Hebrews saying, he is the radiance of the glory of God, he is not in any way telling us that we should look at the Scriptures as anything less than a profound communication that teaches us all that we need to know about God's glory. And there's no experience you need that can do in any way improve on what God has said. Or you're impugning the radiant glory of the Son. Well, perhaps you think somehow we are like uninvited guests. Johnny come lately. And if only we could have walked and seen the real Jesus, then we could have known. God is speaking through the air of all things. There is no one who owns more than the one who has inherited it all. Not merely is he the one who is the heir of all things. He is the one who sustains all things by his powerful word. Do you know if God's word successfully does what it says it will do? Well, if God can hold you together by his word, if he moves cosmic dust that will never be seen by a human eye in galaxies that will never be seen by the human eye, and he moves it according to his perfect will and his perfect attention. And we can be confident that when he speaks through the words of Scripture that he has accomplished and will accomplish anything that he designs. His word is moving this world It is not governed by laws of gravity and physics. It's governed by the Son's Word. So when we have God speaking through the Son, we should have every confidence that this is effective communication. It is trustworthy. It gives us all of the glory of God that we need for life and godliness. There is nothing more to be said when the Son has spoken and sat down at the right hand of God. He is the one who created this world. He created you. And he has not only made the world, he made purification. There's nothing about salvation that the Son doesn't speak to you that you need to know. He has made purification, and in his word, he reveals to us how to be pure. When you look at these words, I would just suggest to you that at the least, you can't walk away with a profound and clear understanding that Jesus Christ is God of God's. In order to communicate the radiant glory of God, 
you have to own the radiant glory of God. So I, I suppose you could think of this as two, in two different ways, but I think one is not correct, but I don't think either one really matters in terms of the deity of Christ. One would be a mirror. And for a mirror to reflect the glory of God, it would have to be a mirror that could sustain and perfectly reproduce that glory. And only God could do that. I don't think that's the best way to take it. I think the best way to take it is that glory is actually coming from the Son. That he possesses by right the very nature of God and he expresses to us the very glory of God. He is God. He is the exact imprint, like a, like a penny stamped with the imprint of Lincoln. But more so, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. So if you were to say, how do we know that this word be true? Because it carries with it the very glory of the nature of God, and God is true. How do I know that this word is sufficient? Because Jesus Christ has spoken through it. He is revealed in it. And in it, the very glory of the Son is revealed. This is why it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He speaks through it. To impugn the word of God is to impugn the Son of God. So here's, here's what some of the confessions have said historically about the sufficiency of Scripture. This is the Westminster Confession. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in the Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added. Did you hear that? What does the Westminster Confession say about new revelations from God? Nothing is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. They're going after the crazies, and the papists, right? No new revelations. You Anabaptists, stay in line. Stop it, you radical reformers, right? They're going after people who are untethered from Scripture because they wanted experiences. They wanted the the supernatural touch. And they're going after the papists who just had tradition and, and loyalties to money and power. He said, the Westminster says, no, God's word is enough. John Owen says it this way, the Holy Spirit of God hath prepared and disposed of the scriptures so as it might be most efficient and absolutely perfect way and means of communicating unto our minds that saving knowledge of God and his will, which is needful, that we may live unto him and come unto the enjoyment of him in his glory. All divine truths necessary to be known and believed that we may live unto God in faith and obedience and come unto and abide in Christ as also be preserved from seducers are contained in the scriptures. God's word is not merely just enough. It is sufficient for all that is to come. It is sufficient for whatever troubles are in your life. It is sufficient to shape the church. It is sufficient to protect us from wolves within and wolves from without. God's word accomplishes all that he sends it to do. Second Timothy makes this clear in a passage referred to many times throughout the morning. Let me just remind you, the word of God is inspired or God-breathed. That's the only time that word's used in Scripture. It's a It's an incredibly unique word, probably coined by Paul there, to explain the unique properties of the written word of God. 
that inspiredness, if we can use that word, leads to its profitability. That means it will successfully accomplish the task. And then he gives two categories and two applications of those categories. He says that it it provides instruction. That is what we should believe, right? Or doctrine, excuse me. That's what we should believe. It, it, It produces then what we should believe and we shouldn't believe, what we should do and what we shouldn't do, so that we have doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction as this kind of quadrant of thinking about how we live and think. Does that make sense? What should you think? The Bible tells you what to think. What should you not think? The Bible tells you what not to think. Well, what should, what should we do? The Bible tells you what to do. You know what the Bible also says? What you shouldn't do. So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. Every good work. So what do you need? Like, what more do you need? You don't need anything more is what Paul is saying. The conclusion then, he tells his young protege, is to do what? Preach it. In an era when a large scroll cost a full year's salary, it was vital that men and women be attending to the reading and preaching of scriptures. It is only in the modern era where we have a plethora of Bibles in our homes, probably in our cars. Good night. On your cell phone, you probably have 80 versions. I'm still concerned that we are as biblically illiterate as ever. So I want you to consider this in summation of Hebrews' concerns. Christ is so compelling, the Son so rich in His expression and revelation of who God is, that when He finishes, God is done speaking to this age. And to suggest that you need something more I think is to be dissatisfied with Christ. I just want you to like marinate in that. (laughs) Seriously. If you want something else, it is not a deficiency of the scriptures, but in you. If you need something more, it is not a lack of worth or value, or effectiveness of Christ, the Son, who has spoken the revelation of God. It is a lack of attentiveness and communion with your Lord through his word in you. So the question before us is, should we take sola scriptura, uh, should we, who take sola scriptura seriously, allow Christian ministries within our churches? Uh, a sweet friend of mine wrote my sermons for me. I don't know if I had mentioned that before. I probably should have started there. The first sermon was, yes, do little alterations in the gospel matter. The second sermon he wrote for me was, no. Should we partner with ministries that are charismatic? No. That was the whole manuscript he gave me. So, so I, wanna, I want you to consider it and just like, let's, let's process together how we think about ministry. There is a lack of contentment in living by faith. 
that is epidemic in the modern church. And here's what I mean by that. How do you know God is with you? The psalmist would tell us by faith. How do you know he'll be your protector in trouble? By faith. How do you know when life hurts and you feel all alone and abandoned by every human in this world, how do you know God has not abandoned you? Is it a feeling? Is it a sensation? Is it the hairs in your arm getting all tickled? It is by faith we know our God is with us. And the supremacy of feelings in the modern church is an abandonment of satisfaction with Christ himself through his word. Why would we ever call into any church a leader who is urging people to lean into their feelings, to lean into revelations that seem to imply the word is not enough? To stir up a dissatisfaction in the faith God has called us to live by and instead lean on feelings as opposed to faith. Why would we ever do that to our churches? If you love people, if you love the Savior, if you love the Word, then you do not want anyone leading anyone who is going to appeal to them to lean into feelings because it will lean them away from faith. Spurgeon said this, Faith is the soul's eye by which it sees the Lord. Faith is the soul's ear by which we hear what God the Lord will speak to us. Faith is the spiritual hand which touches and grasps the things that not seen yet. Faith is the spiritual nostril which perceives the precious perfume of our Lord's garments with which we smell myrrh and aloes and cassia. Faith also is the soul's taste by which we perceive the sweetness of our Lord and enjoy it for ourselves. Faith is the central way we apprehend the presence and the grace and the sweetness of our God. Why have we lost a call to move people to trust instead of feel? We live by faith, not by sight. I would suggest to you that it is an implicit form of idolatry. Let me defend that just by referring your minds to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. We are not to make graven images. You see, the human soul really, really wants to not live by faith. And God is immaterial. He is not matter. You cannot touch God. You cannot see God unless he chooses to reveal himself in such a way. And so he gives this command that we do not misrepresent him by making images and statues. And of course, Israel immediately shows us that they can't abide by that limitation. And they make a golden calf and worship it and name it what? You guys remember this? They name it Yahweh. You know, Israel is craving his experience. They were They were craving a God who didn't demand they walk in faith. They wanted to see, to know that this God was real. And so they make him into a golden calf and God judges them as idol worshipers. And the charismatic cancer in our country is an appeal to lean into the sensory experiences because it's dissatisfied with faith and the God who demands that we approach him on faith. It is an incipient form of idol worship. Uh, let me just, another sidebar here. 
when someone says, I heard God in my heart, we have multiple concerns that we should be thinking when they say those words. First, I commune with God by going to him in prayer. Hebrews 4 gives us this image, and I think it's really helpful for me. We enter into God's presence, and he says we come before the what? The throne of grace. You know what God doesn't come into? My head. I pray to him. Our Father, who art in heaven, not my head. The God in your head is your imagination, not the God who dwells and rules from on high. And I think we ought to be really, really consistent on calling people to be careful in their speech because my guess is what they actually mean is something. Scripture has informed my conscience. My conscience has burdened me to do something and I think God would be pleased with it. And they say words like God spoke to me and we have got to get rid of that linguistic trash. It is opening the door to charismatic problems. So stop using words like God spoke unless you're talking about this. Stop using words that indicate direct revelation. Because I think if I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the influencer's ministry, they probably read words like God spoke to me and they read it to mean some spiritual impression in the inner man that's consistent with most of evangelicalism and is frankly inconsistent with Scripture. Christ is enough. God has spoken through his son. Why do you need more? So in the question of should we let other ministries in, I think the question we should ask any ministry leader is, why aren't you satisfied with Christ? And if you're not satisfied with Christ, what qualifies you to be stepping up into ministry and leading anyone anywhere? Sit down until you get satisfied with Christ and his word. Learn what it means to meditate on the word of God and be satisfied with your Savior's ministry. If he is the bread of life, then spend time being spiritually fed and so richly satisfied with him that you need not find your mind and imagination filled with other concerns. And finally, theological competency and vocabulary seems to be a basic expectation of most ministry leaders. So if we have ministries that are asking for us to partner with them, and the ministry leaders cannot theologically communicate accurately the word of God, then they should not be leading. It seems like a simple outcome, right? But like, if you say you believe this, but you talk like this, I know all the people that you're discipling are going to believe this. So, so I, I guess I don't care what you say you believe, until you speak theologically clearly and until you speak with biblical consistency, then sit down and learn. And can I just, in all graciousness then, ask that anyone in this audience plead for their pastors before the throne of grace, that their pastors be men who are diligent students of the word, who can articulate it with clarity and biblical accuracy. That is the duty of every shepherd, is the duty of every leader. And just a broad appeal then, 
I hope you all are evangelizing your own children and your grandchildren. Do so with theological clarity. Call them to embrace Christ and the saving benefits that he brings with him and that they might cling to him and be satisfied with Christ's word that the Holy Spirit has brought into being through the ministry of men so that we might see the revelation of Christ, be satisfied with him, and not eager or longing for something outside of the gifts of Christ. I can't tell you, and I did not do a good job. This thing is so precious, isn't it? I want you to think about this for a second. God who dwells in unapproachable light. Or as Isaiah says, he is high and lifted up. Has through his word revealed himself so that through the Son of God you might know him, you might know saving truth, you might commune with the maker, the eternal God, the Holy One. And he condescends to you. And he ministers to you. And he shepherds your soul through his word. And he loves you through his word. And he teaches and instructs and rebukes through his word. And this word of Christ is so dear and so full and so satisfying that anyone who needs anything else has simply not tasted of the goodness of the ministry of Christ in his word. I hope you love it. We are so privileged that we have 80 so translations on our phones that you can hit play and hear someone read the word of God to you better than I've ever read. That you can hear competent preachers expound the word of God so that you might see the glory of Christ and through the ministry of this uh, spirit be transformed. I hope you love God's word as the instrument by which we hear him speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you would give us hearts that love to spend time in it, to hear our God speak, not through an audible voice, not through a literal voice, not through a voice in our head, but the inscripturated text of Christ as he spoke through his apostles and prophets. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of those men who have gifted to the church a solid foundation that is true in everything it affirms. Every word is exactly as it is inspired by the Spirit, trustworthy and good. You have spoken through your Son. We need nothing else. Thank you so much for giving us this communication, Father. Thank you for your word. Stir up within your people a deep satisfaction in it and a guardianship, a distaste, and a defensiveness against those who impugn it by looking for alternate ways of experiencing or tasting or hearing from you that do not require them to walk with you by faith. Lord, I pray that you guard your church through your shepherds, that they might stand, watch over the flock, lest wolves sneak in, 
or arise up from among the leaders and thereby the church be done much harm. Lord, shepherd your church through its under-shepherds, we pray. Lead us to green pastures. Feed your sheep through its under-shepherds, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.